0: A few doors down the hall at the Rotman Institute, we spoke with Dr. William Harper, who studies evidence in science, game theory, and Kant's empirical realism. He joins us to talk about his research into Newton's process of scientific discovery. Today, joining us on The Sound of Science is Professor William Harper, Professor Emeritus at the Department of Philosophy at Western University and a member of the Rotman Institute of Philosophy. In his research, Professor Harper explores how scientific theories are formed on the basis of available evidence and which philosophical approaches scientists can use to arrive to their conclusions. Over the years, Professor Harper has published multiple works in the philosophy of science, taught philosophy of science, and logic courses at Western and from 2002 until 2005, served as the president of the Canadian Society for History and Philosophy of Science. In 2011, Professor Harper published a book exploring the philosophical methodology of Isaac Newton and the method by which Newton has created his gravitational and cosmological theory. It is a great pleasure and an honour to have you on the show, Professor Harper.
1: Well, thank you. I'm delighted to be here.
0: Okay, so we'll get started right away with our first question. So our first question is, what exactly is the hypothetical deductive method, and how would one apply it to available evidence?
1: On the hypothetical deductive method, uh, the theory is treated as a hypothesis to be tested. Successful prediction gives uh, confirmation to the hypothesis. If the observations or data turn out to be incompatible with the theory, then that requires that gives grounds for revision or perhaps rejection of the theory.
0: Generally, in which ways does Newton's methodology differ from this method?
1: So on this hypothetical deductive method, empirical success is just accurate prediction. Newton's uh, methodology uses provisional acceptance of background assumptions, the laws of motion and some others, to get systematic dependencies between phenomena, that's patterns in data, and uh, theoretical propositions that would be inferred.
0: For Newton's method, the notion of empirical success is crucial. What exactly is empirical success?
1: Uh, well, there, there are many different kinds. As I said, that the uh, on hypothetical reductive method, empirical success is accurate prediction. Uh, one sort of empirical success uh, that's central to what Newton does is to have the background assumptions allow the phenomena, the background assumptions to give you systematic dependencies that allow the phenomena to actually measure the theoretical parameters. Now, one example that I think is a useful one to get the idea is the moon test inference. So after Newton had inverse square centripetal forces toward uh, Jupiter from the orbits of Jupiter's moons, Saturn from the orbits of Saturn's moons, and the Sun from the uh, orbits of the planets, and the Earth from a combination of pendulum experiments and the moon test. So the moon test is going to be the thing I'm looking at. So what in the moon test... He takes the centripetal acceleration exhibited by the lunar orbit. Now, this requires background assumptions and observations to get what the centripetal acceleration at the orbit would be. Then he increases that to get what it would be at the surface of the Earth. And he compares that value for that acceleration with what Huygens had measured using seconds pendulums. In fact, now, so you have the agreement between these two measurements led led Newton to infer that the force that maintains the moon in its orbit is terrestrial gravity, our gravity. Moreover, this inference was accepted by Huygens and Leibniz and all these others who really worried and objected to Newton's more general theory. Uh, And one of the things it had was that it changed, it added something to gravity. So if now people realize gravity varied inversely with the square of the distance. And this inference got all of that going. And it's an, so it's an example of a, of a theory-mediated uh, theory measurements and agreement between measurements. So this is a second kind of empirical success. Now there's a long history... That was involved in uh, by Newton and, uh, and his successors over hundreds of years uh, applying newton 's theory of gravity to our solar system, and th- that involved one of the things Newton did with measurements was he was able to measure the relative masses of the sun from the orbits of its planets uh, uh, Jupiter from the orbits of its of its moons the uh, Saturn from the orbits of its moons, uh, and our earth from these pendulum experiments in the orbit of our moon. And he realized that the sun is so much more massive than the planets that the center of gravity of the solar system is never gets very far outside of the surface of the sun. It does move the, and by the way, I can't resist, uh, a striking example of the methodology at work is using this methodology to apply it to what was the dominant question in uh, the 17th century uh, in, in, in science. Uh, it was called natural philosophy then. It was the question of is it a sun-centered or an earth-centered solar system? Uh, these are, by the way, Galileo's famous dialogue, the two chief world systems, is based on that question. Newton's resolution gave a surprising answer. They're both wrong because the sun is, when the planets are more of them on one side than the other, the center of gravity is not the center of the sun. But because of the enormous mass of the sun, the sun-centered one is fairly close whereas an Earth-centered one would be hopeless. By the way, I can't resist this either. There's a... Uh, in Kepler's Astronomy and Nova, the new astronomy would be... The, uh, he has a diagram giving what would be the pattern of Mars from uh, an Earth-centered reference frame over several hundred years. And it's this enormously complicated pattern. Uh, and uh, so uh, the taking the sun-centered one gives you a good starting place to then look at deviations. So they, in, the, uh, in the ephemeris, that's the program for predicting the motions of planets, the positions of planets in the solar system. Uh, you start with a two-body thing for each a planet and the sun. And then you... So now you've got this... Keplerian ellipse, a two-body Kepler ellipse, uh, say, for Jupiter. And now you look for deviations from the predicted locations that you would observe against the fixed stars. Uh, And now you find some deviations. And then you look for, using Newton's theory, you look for, uh, for interactions, gravitational interactions you've been ignoring and then you uh, try to uh, put, uh, you p- build those in, and that makes a more refined model. And now you look for more deviations again from that more refined model after you've got these. And you look for further interactions you've been ignoring. And you keep doing this over and over again. And what this involved, there's a, by the way, there's a wonderful book uh, by George Smith on this, uh, and you can also look up, his papers on the Stanford archive uh, that uh, talks about over over and over again, you're finding out new dependencies between features of orbits, and how those features control what happens later in the orbit, and it was this enormous success at getting for these. learning these systematic dependencies I call these Newtonian causal dependencies that uh, afforded enormous uh, weight for Newton's theory and now I want to say something from Newton about Newton had uh, what's called his fourth rule of reason and propositions gathered from phenomena by induction uh, should be Regarded as either exactly or very nearly true, notwithstanding any contrary hypotheses, until further phenomena make them either more exact or liable to exceptions. Now, uh, this this sequences of empirical successes were raising the standard. For Newton's theory, for anything that would be uh, could be an alternative, would have to meet in order to not be dismissed as a mere rival hypothesis. And Einstein, you have all heard about, of course, the Mercury perihelion. But one of the things that Einstein built in to his theory of gravity was to have uh, the static weak field limit which is gonna be something that makes sure it recovers all these things that Newton's theory had. So when he got, and again, I can't resist, one of the most exciting moments of Einstein's life, one of his biographers says it was perhaps the most exciting moment in his whole life, was when he applied, he, he didn't yet have his full field equation. He was, ha- But he had approximations for what it would have to be for a spherical mass energy distribution like the sun. And he's applying that to Mercury. And he's getting the 43 seconds. That uh, And uh, now he was building in, with a static weak field limit, the others. By the way, there's another 531 seconds a century of Mercury's perihelion. So this is actually recovering. This is an example of... General relativity, recovering the dependencies.
0: Are you able to actually quickly describe what Mercury's perihelion is like? I don't think um, a lot of people may oh, understand that.
1: Okay. So, uh, okay. Think of an ellipse w- with the force on a f- to a focus. Uh, now, uh, if now you've suppose you've got a planet at the aphelion is the is the is the is the, the, the line going through the center of the ellipse. And the focus is on that line, and it's toward the nearer part to the uh, to the focus. That's the perihelion, the closest point. The aphelion is the farthest point. Now imagine you have a planet moving from the aphelion and to get back to the aphelion. If it goes exactly 360 degrees against, say, some fixed star, then that's zero precession. If it has to go more than 360 degrees, that's forward precession. And so in Mercury's case, it was precessing forward 43 seconds per century. And backwards precession, it's falling off. Uh, sorry, backwards precession would be uh, less than 360 degrees. By the way, now that we've got this, my most favorite Newton, Newton, Newtonian uh, inference is to f- go from absence of precession to the inverse square. Because he has systematic dependencies uh, that suppose, uh, if you have forward precession, if, if you have zero precession and ellipse with a force to the focus, it's exactly inverse square. If you've got forward precession, it's falling off faster than the inverse square. If you've got backwards precession, it's falling off slower than the inverse square. That's, by the way, my favorite example of theory-mediated measurement and, and this kind of a success.
0: In which ways does the modern account of gravitational phenomena in cosmology use the Newton methodology and perhaps even exceed the standard of empirical success set by Newton?
1: Some years ago, uh, uh, Robert Kirshner, by the way, two of his students shared half of that Nobel Prize for dark energy. Uh, And uh, he had a book, I believe the book, the first edition, was published in... uh, 91 uh and in 94 a fourth printing of the book what came out and it had an epilogue and in the epilogue he talked about uh how uh somebody was giving a talk at harvard smithsonian and was saying i'm just going to assume a lambda cold dark matter model this was somebody talking about galaxy cannibalism when galaxies come and uh uh and nobody blinked. Nobody raised any objections. And Kirshner says he was sitting in the back thinking, five years ago, that would have been outrageous. Dark energy was something personally rejected by Einstein in the sense of lambda, the cosmo. So what changed? And the epilogue is what changed. Now, before I say that, I want to say what the model is. It's the model for large-scale cosmology today it's a dust solution to Einstein's field equation where the specks of dust are clusters of galaxies so this is very very large scale and now at the uh, the mass energy here uh, they really in this model there are two kinds there's what we'll call omega sub lambda, and that's this wild stuff, dark energy. And then the third, about 30 percent, is what we'll call omega m for ordinary mass energy. Now that's also pretty a little bit wild because that the the visible parts you've probably heard of the uh, dark matter problem. Well, the visible mass energy would count for 0.03, and so you got a lot of dark matter there too. Okay, now that's the model. And uh, what Kirshner... Now, one of the... Kirshner's book was, by the way, about uh, supernova redshift and and the history of developing supernova redshift theory. And those two um, of his students that shared that Nobel Prize worked on one of those groups. The other half of the Nobel Prize was by the head of the other group, all working on supernova redshift. Now the supernova redshift. So, for certain kinds of supernova, you know what the frequency should be for the in for, for in in the in the halo as you're looking at the thing, and the redshift is that you know you know what the what it should be, and the redshift it shifted toward the red. That means it's moving away. And the faster it moves away, the more redshift it is. Now, the really amazing thing about this, it's an accelerating expansion of space itself. The further ones are not only moving faster, but they're moving faster enough faster that it's like the rate is accelerating. The further ones are faster and faster and faster. Okay, that's a supernova redshift. And uh, then uh, what... Now, those are giving you measurements of that, of, of that omega lambda. Now, what you had was work that was done on galaxy clustering. And those are giving you, oh, by the way, oh, I, I can't resist. His, uh, Kirshner, when he starts talking about this, uh, talks about how they got rid of some problems in the supernova redshift. And after you've read the book, you read this, and oh, wow, that's a lot better. And uh, he says, nope, wasn't just that then he talks about the galaxy clustering. Now, that's stuff that's going in to focusing on the, uh, especially on the, uh, on the point three. And, uh, and, and again, how that got better and how the two things are coming together to give agreeing measurements at the same place. And, uh, uh, and you read that and he says, nope, wasn't that either, just that was the combination of those two with... It turned out the WMAP, this is the satellite at four times the lunar distance. It's mapping the whole background. And uh, the uh, WMAP uh, uh, microwave background measurements are giving you another measurement, and all three are coming together at that point. And this is a striking example of Newton's methodology at work. And by the way, this is raising the standard that any alternative, say, uh, uh, a, uh, uh, static model or, uh, there's a fellow at, uh, at, uh, in, in, Autog- in, in, sorry, in New Zealand, uh, who, uh, has, uh, pointed out that the supernova redshift, me- you could think that we're in a bubble and, and, uh, so wheelchairs theory. And uh, uh, so it would be possible to explain the supernova redshift without, without having this this wildly expanding background. And uh, But again, the standards, these agreeing measurements are raising the standards that allows you to just say, nope, too bad, just a mere hypothesis. So that would be Newton's methodology at work today in cosmology.
0: Okay, great. Thank you. Um, it was very interesting hearing all your insights into your research. Thank you very much for sharing with our audience. I just had one last question, though, prior to finishing. Um, so your research is in philosophy of science and you, um, your, most of your education background is in, within philosophy. Um, so how did you come to arrive at this interest in your life and begin doing research, I suppose?
1: I, uh, well, first I went to Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute as an undergrad, and uh, for the first two years, everybody takes, th- so I, I had a lot of good basic physics, uh, and uh, I had a, you know, my, originally I started working on probability, and uh, I did my PhD on probability and uh, uh, r- belief change models, uh, but i was at a conference uh in uh a philosopher of science named clark glemore uh was working on uh ways of looking at scientific inference very positively and then he uh there was a, 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 a very another very famous philosopher of science Bas van Frossen who's an empiricist sort of and, And I would hear they would go and give, Clark would give talks, and the two of them, and Boss would. One of the things that Boss would say over and over again is that the, uh, look, uh, the uh, he appeal to a Bayesian model. So uh, the probability of a theory can never be higher than its deductive consequences. That's a standard thing about probability. If T implies E, then T's probability can never be higher than E's. It's usually lower. And Boss would say, look, I'm just being more careful than you guys. You're going accepting theory. I'm just being more cautious. Mm -hmm. And I started to think about Newton's unification of Huygens' work with pendulums and Kepler's work on the planets. And I realized there must be some notion of empirical success that isn't measured just by probability. And uh, because surely, if you just took, uh, say, Tycho Brahe developed a... uh, First, he had the uh, the best data that anybody had um, before this telescope, this was, and uh, he uh, but he developed a theory that's an Earth-centered system uh, that is much better than Ptolemy's. In fact, if you took say Kepler's theory of of Mars, and you put a or even of all the planets, and then put uh, and take the, the, well, just do it for Mars, take the Kepler orbit, then uh, take the same and put the reference frame instead of in the center of the sun, in the center of uh, uh, the Earth, that would give you a, ty- a, a, a Tychonic system. And for all the data that was available, uh, uh, all the observational data up until... Uh, the mid eighteen hundreds uh uh where they first were starting to get uh uh solar redshift uh, sorry not solar red uh anyway data data that could be uh aberration would be one that's not the one I was thinking of but aberration uh and uh but now that you've got this uh you've got if you just took the conjunction of Kepler and uh, Galileo, mm-hmm. and you're getting the approximate truth of that from Newton's, if you just took that conjunction, then the absence of solar parallax might give you good grounds for resisting uh, going for the, uh, for, for the more complicated solar system. But once you've got Newton's theory there, surely then that gives you a stronger thing. And that started me going
0: on this. Thank you very much for joining us on the show, Dr. Harper. All right. Thank
1: you. I've enjoyed it very much.
0: You just heard from Dr. Harper speak about the hypothetico deductive method, which was employed by Newton to make some of his most impressive discoveries in cosmology and gravitation. This episode has taken us from the depths of the human brain to the physical principles that govern planetary motion, all from the perspective of philosophy. We hope that this episode has broadened your mind about the interdisciplinary nature of scientific understanding, and encouraged you to learn more about the research going on at the Rotman Institute of Philosophy at Western University. As always, thank you for joining us on another episode of Sound of Science. Our podcasts are aired live on Radio Western, 94.9 FM in London, Ontario, and they're also available to stream on our website at www.soundofsci.org, where we feature each of our interviews individually. Follow us on Facebook at Sound of Sci, and like usual, we hope that you can join us again in our conversation we like to call Sound of Science.